the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> Holy Church gives us today, on this third Sunday of Advent, the great uh, message of rejoice, Gaudete. Rejoice, and rejoice well. And it's excellent that we should hear this imperative, this command to rejoice. Because it's one that we and the world around us desperately need. When I was in seminary, I remember asking a classmate who was from overseas what he thought of the Americans. He said something very interesting. He said, among the Americans, all of you smile and none of you are happy. <laughs> Ouch. Fair. And he said one thing as well, and he said, and everyone seems tired. He says, you all smile, but no one is happy, and everyone seems tired. And while I would like to make exceptions to that, I know very many people who do, in fact, have true Christian joy that goes all the way down through the soul, and who have that constant renewal that comes from the Lord, I think it's a fair point that this classmate of mine had made. That in the world around us, we encounter the command not, not to be joyful or to rejoice, but the command to be happy at whatever cost. And yet we find around us how many people who are tired, who are not joyful, who are filled with weight and burden and anxiety, and who simply look to escape it at whatever cost. It's to these that the message of the church goes out. Rejoice. That vice of, of sorrow is one that the ancient Christians knew very well. They had a name for it. They called this vice achadia. In our uh, modern day, we usually call that sloth or sloth. But that vice was achadia. And the ancient Christians would say that this vice is a sorrow at the state of reality. Not just at events, but a sorrow at the structure of things. A looking out at the world and simply being exhausted by perceiving it and interacting with it. A world weariness. And it's interesting that the medievals would talk about sloth in this, in this way. That sloth was not just laziness, not having a work ethic. But sloth was a certain sorrow of the heart at the world itself. That sloth is a sorrow of the heart at the world itself. That Achadia had certain effects that if this vice was present in a soul, then that soul would do anything it could to escape the place where God had put it, to escape its vocation, to escape the place that God had assigned it by providence. They would describe this, uh, they called this vice of Achadia by, by its nickname, they called it the noonday devil, because it was this uh, vice that the monk would experience there in his cell, alone with God, when it was noon and the sun seemed not to move and the day seemed to drag on and the monk would begin to think, if only I could leave my cell, I could do so much good. If only I could go out into town, I could do charity. If only I could leave the cell, I might have... I might experience 
a little bit of the lifting of my soul. And what's interesting is the ancient Christians said the solution to Achadia, the thing that fights this vice of sorrow and of weariness, is spiritual joy. That spiritual joy fights this vice and cleans it out of a soul. Which is really interesting because I think often when we consider joy, we consider it as a reaction to a state of things outside of us. We consider joy the thing that happens when things are going well. When I have what I desire, when I have what I'm looking for, when I possess that, uh, that what, I'm, what I'm chasing, when things are peaceable at work, when pe- things are peaceable in my family, when I don't have worries, when I don't have concerns, that's when I am happy. When my life has become stable, then I am joyful. But the ancient Christians, specifically the Desert Fathers, who were the first monks of the church, would say, no, joy itself is a virtue. Joy itself is something that we can accomplish, that we can command our soul, rejoice. We can urge our soul, take joy, not be happy, but rejoice, because there's this distinction between this virtue of joy and the feeling of happiness that comes with having good things. But what is the content of this joy? Why are we able to rejoice? Why can we command our soul to rejoice? Often I think we're told that we should be happy as Christians, that we should have the joy of the gospel, and we may wonder uh, what exactly that is all about, because we don't often talk necessarily about the content of it. But again, the Desert Fathers, when giving advice to monks and telling them to rejoice in the face of that vice of weariness and sorrow, Say, there's a specific thing you can tell your soul, a specific thing to offer it, to tell it to rejoice. The ancient monks would say, speak to your soul about the incarnation of the Lord. Speak to your soul about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Speak to your soul about the fact that God has become man and lived among us. And that breaks the grip of spiritual sorrow and of world weariness, that truth is the secret to constantly being renewed in the Lord and finding the zeal, the fire to love God and our neighbor. Remind your soul of the incarnation. Speak to your soul about Christ coming among us. And that is the content of our joy as Christians. The mystery for which we patiently wait every Advent. In our gospel, John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus. And we can well imagine the temptation of John who was in prison at the time. John has had a very strange life up to this point. He's been called from birth and set aside as this prophet. He's lived out in the desert dressing himself in camel skin and eating bugs for a very long time and has spoken about this one who is to come after him like a fire in the desert. He's a beacon that calls out to the world, lighting the way to the Lord, telling them, prepare your soul. The one who is greater than me is coming after me. Prepare your soul for him. 
And then Christ arrives, calls his disciples. John's ministry declines. He says, this is good. It is good that he should increase and I should decrease. And then he falls afoul of the king because he tells him something. He tells King Herod, your marriage is unlawful and now John's in prison. It's a strange thing. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We might expect Christ to choose John to be one of his foremost apostles. It would have made a great deal of sense for Christ to choose this prophet who clearly has loved him and who clearly knows God deeply and has inspired others who has already gathered crowds. It would make sense for Christ to go to him and say, John, you have spoken well of me. To you I will entrust the church. But instead, Jesus does no such thing and he gives it to a fisherman who can't even conquer his fear yet. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. John has given this great service And now for falling afoul of the whim of a king, he sits in prison, wondering, what happened? Is this my life? And though we know John doesn't fail in his faith, we can well imagine the temptation to Achadia he would experience. This temptation to weariness that might be offered to his soul. When he doesn't know why he's suffering or what's going on around him, And he reaches out for the one thing that breaks Achadia. He reaches out to Jesus and says, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? We should not interpret this as John doubting whether Christ is truly the one. But asking him, please, Lord, speak to me. Tell me that you are the one who is to come. Speak to my soul about who you are. And break the grip of temptation on me. And Jesus replies to him. He says, tell John, the blind are regaining their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. I am the one he thought I was. I am the power of God in the midst of humanity. And he has every reason to rejoice because I am here. I am here. Blessed is the one who understands this. He says, today on this Gaudete Rejoice Sunday, the Lord says the same thing to our soul. If you are weary, take heart. If your soul is oppressed with sorrow, do not be afraid. If you are tired, come to me and rest and be renewed. Not just with happiness, not just with the joy that the world offers, the joy of shiny things that passes immediately as soon as those things lose their luster. Christ says to our soul, I am here. I am already here. Do not be afraid, but understand that I have loved you enough to descend out of heaven or rather to bring heaven to you in myself and to live among you as one of you, to pitch my tent among yours and to offer release, freedom, salvation. The Lord says to us, you have wished that things go well for you here in time. And I have come to offer you eternity. 
You have wished for an end to your anxieties here in the world. And I offer you the house of my Father in which you can live as his true child. Do not be afraid. You have wished that someone would understand what it is you bear. And I have come to bear all of it upon my shoulders and upon my heart. That is what the Lord says to us today. As he said to John, whenever we see a tabernacle, whenever we come into a church, we can see that the Blessed Sacrament is present there. No matter what burdens we bear, no matter what weariness we carry with us, no matter what anxieties trouble our hearts, the fact remains. The Lord is here. He is already here. And He is coming soon. Do not be afraid. Look at His presence and tell your soul, rejoice because the Word was made flesh and dwells among us. It's a joy greater than any for which we could have ever imagined to ask. G.K. Chesterton, in his great uh, poem, The Ballad of the White Horse, which if you've never read it, please, please, please do, especially chapter 3, it's absolutely brilliant. In said chapter 3, in Ballad of the White Horse, Alfred, the king of England, who is beset on all sides by the pagan Danes and is gearing up for a fight that he cannot win, goes into the Danish camp in disguise carrying his harp and asks the Danes to sing for him. And each one in turn sings about the source of happiness for them. The first, who is very young, sings about the joy of plunder, sings about the joy of going throughout the entire world and collecting up all of its goods, its wine, its gold, its ivory. The second one sings of the joy of romance, sings of the joy of unfolding one's heart to another and the great bittersweet pleasure of knowing another. The third sings of the joy of battle. And the final one, having gone through all of this, the great king, Girthram, the king of the Danes, finally sings at the end of the sorrow that lies after all of this. To know that having taken deeply everything the world has to offer, he says, you wonder if the gods are still alive and you find that your soul is no longer within you. And Alfred, hearing this account of the pagans, what is joy? To drink down everything of the world and be sad at the end of it. Alfred says, we are different, we Christians. We are different. Because you, the pagan world, go around with feasts and laughter and all is dead within. We go about with fasting and silence and all is fire within. We fast for joy while the world feasts for sorrow. And we have more heart to go out and face difficulty than the world does to experience pleasure. That's the joy of the Christian. That in the midst of everything, while all seems ice outside, we have a heart of fire. Because Christ lives with us.
and nothing can put him out. So rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice. I say it again. Rejoice. And take courage in the Lord Jesus, who is very near. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.